The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of hope. Messages of hope. Hi, everybody. I hope that many of you uh, listen to the show regularly and hear that theme song like I do every week and get all excited because that's what we do here is talk about the messages that bring us hope from the other side and that's our main subject today. Before we get into that just very briefly I'm so heartened by the fact that so many people are responding so positively to the Awakened Living workshop that I put online as a gift It's had over 5,000 views in just a very short time that I posted it, and I hope that if you're interested, you'll go to YouTube or to my website to the free gifts page. Uh, On YouTube, you can just search by my name and Awakened Living and find that two-hour workshop that's all full of tools about how to find more peace, especially in these turbulent times, just by awakening to who we are. So let's get on with the topic today. My guest is Bill Guggenheim, who I had the pleasure of meeting at a conference about the afterlife several years ago. And we communicated back and forth a few times by email, ran into each other again. And I remember he kind of cornered me and he said, why don't you use the term after death communication? And I was kind of caught back and I thought well it just wasn't part of my training as a medium I studied with the British uh, teachers most of all and and I thought why don't I use it because that's certainly what a medium takes part in is after death communication but I have him on the show today so that all of us can get more educated about what he means by after death communication and he's just fascinating and wait till you find out about all the research he's done in this field and why but let me not talk alone here any longer. Bill, I know you're waiting in the wings, so welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, and so did you actually coin the term after-death communication? Uh, very much so. We, we is my former wife, Judy Guggenheim. We had been married for 17 years. We were divorced for four years. Then we began our research um, in 1988, and that took seven years of research and writing to produce our book, Hello from Heaven, which was the first book ever written about this field of uh, human experience that we call after-death communication. So we can honestly say we founded, we defined, we researched, and we named 
an entire new field of human experience. But when I say new field, I think it probably is old as mankind, that this is not something we have just recently developed the ability to do, but rather that ancient man depended upon it, especially indigenous man, people living in you know, small communities, uh, could not have a leader or a medicine man, a shaman, whatever you want to call that person, die and leave them with such a vacancy of knowledge. And they had to come back and provide information for those who are still alive, including not only where to you know, gather food and where to build their villages, but also when danger was on the way, danger from another tribe or other group to protect them and to save them from harm's way. Wow, that's something I never thought about. I, I want, I'm, I'm just intrigued, though, that you, were, you and Judy were divorced. Most people, when they're divorced, go their separate ways. What brought the two of you together four years later to do this research? Well, um, we had been married, and I had a very spontaneous and unsought and a, a very dramatic spiritual awakening in 1974 when I was 35 years old. And it took a very unusual form of spiritual awakening in that I began receiving voices by telepathy. I didn't hear words, but I received thoughts. And they Uh dictated stories, short stories to me, spiritual short stories to me. And I wrote them down with a long hand on a pad and a pen on paper. And Uh uh, over 56 of them. Also some poetry, but not very good. Some parables that were very good and also messages from people who had died for people who were living, which is nice if I <laughs> someone like you would know I have the ability and the support for doing that. But in my case, I was a materialist. I want to stop you there a second, Bill, because anybody that knows my story knows I was just like you, the former Navy commander who had never been hearing stories. So I totally relate with what you were suddenly experiencing, including the poetry. What was your background at that time as far as career-wise? I used to be a, a, uh, used to be a uh, securities analyst and a stockbroker on Wall Street for two small oh firms there. And my beliefs about life after death were very simple. I used to compare people to flashlight batteries. And I said, when the juice ran out, you threw the battery away. Because when you're dead, you're dead. Oh, it sounds like my dad. Goodness. <laughs> I guess I guess somebody uh, in, in a greater reality wanted to prove you wrong when they just just suddenly turned that on, that clear clear audience. I think, and and uh, looking back, I believe in life before birth that we choose our roles, our lives, to a large extent before we're born. And that I chose this role in my life, and I was just following my own script, so to speak, because I believe, yeah. my, in all honesty, my spiritual work to do during this lifetime was exactly this work, this research for this book, Hello from Heaven. And uh, that's what I've been, I did for seven years, and since then I've given 30 years, three zero years of workshops uh, to people who are grieving the death of a loved one. To, especially to bereaved parents all over the United States and Canada. Yeah, and what a blessing. What forth, a gift you've you've given so many. From, when I got worn out from traveling to the airports and security, you know, uh, waiting in lines of security and all that's involved with going from hotel to hotel and 
the hotel food and everything else. I did uh, stop doing that uh, in, in 2018. I'll still go any place in Florida, but I'm not willing to go beyond that as far as travels go because I'm now 81 years old. And mm-hmm. uh, I just don't need to do that. <laughs> but I can do it on the telephone. I'll talk to you anybody. Bet. Uh, or do by email, and I do podcasts and things like that, uh, Zoom, you name it, and especially for helping parents heal. It used to be for the compassionate friends. Uh, Judy and I together did 15 national conferences for the compassionate friends. Wow. So you just reached out to Judy and said, hey, I've been receiving these messages and stories and such for years. Uh but what was it that flipped that switch that said, let's research this? These- okay. We were married when I began doing this, and she was my number one supporter. So she knew more about what I was going through than anybody. However, that was a, a, a period that lasted about a little over four months, and I've chronicled it. I've written a second book calling The Book of Circles, which I plan to self-publish. But mm-hmm. uh, when it came to uh, this, Two years later, in 1970, three years later, 77, I went to a five-day workshop with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a foremost authority on death and dying. And uh, I was very hesitant about going. Uh, she invited me to come because I had sent her a small gift. I saw her TV. I saw her on TV on the Phil Donahue show, and uh, she gave a very riveting presentation for an hour. Although at that point, uh, caring for terminally ill patients and things like that are not my thing because I'm frankly squeamish. <laughs> I'm not a, a nurse mm-hmm. or a doctor or anything like that. But nevertheless, I sent her a small check uh, to pursue her work. It was sort of like a, a little pat on the back, like that's what you give to Boy Scouts or, you know, some other <laughs> you know, charity or something for the day. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, she wrote back to me and sent me a set of audio cassette tapes and an invitation to attend this workshop, which was on the other side of Florida about six months later. And at first I felt very elated that somebody as famous as she was would invite me. And then, however, as the time came, I, uh, I thought about who would be there. I thought it would be nurses, doctors, uh, you know, all the people who deal with those who are eternally ill. And... Uh, I didn't want to take up their space, so I waited to the last day of the registration registration period to call, and I did, expecting to receive her secretary. However, it was snowing in Chicago that day. She answered her own telephone. Oh, my. Sort of like, I don't know, somebody in Washington or Hollywood answering their phone, and you know their voice, and you know this. You know, it could have been Jennifer Aniston, or uh, (laughs) I'm not going to go into the politics, but somebody very well known. And she reckoned, she remembered me and she said it her German Swiss accent, Bill, I think you should be there. And hmm. I very meekly said, well, Elizabeth, if you say so, I'll be there. And it turned out to be the five most joyous days, hmm. five most joyous consecutive days of my life because the workshop wow. was about life and living, not death and dying. Hmm. And 70 people shared their pain, their grief, their heartache of entire lifetimes within days and within hours. And we bonded. And by the end of the workshop, we all wanted to go off to some island, bring our other family members, and just sort of have our own hippie island for the rest of our lives and not deal with the rest 
of life. I, I think a lot of us that. listening understand that. Yeah. And uh, during that workshop, there was a, a mother there, who uh, a brave mother, who she herself was a nurse and very well spoken, from Peoria, Illinois, and her daughter had been out walking, and she was hit and killed by a driver. Not a drunk driver, not careless, just happened that day. Uh, the driver came around the curve and didn't see the young girl walking. And uh, she reported how this, her daughter came back to her and how she was much more alive and filled with good health and love and radiance than anything else. And all these stories I tell will I'll read the book, Hello from Heaven, so I can just... Mm, described it briefly now, but it, it, there was something about that story that was absolutely beautiful and uplifting, but because she called it a dream, my old ah. analytical self said, ah, I'm very happy she had this experience, but a dream is not real, so I dismissed it. Then ah. she went on to say how this young girl, Kathy, had appeared to her brother while he was doing his homework. And he had looked up and he had seen her and she was three-dimensional, described the clothing he saw and whatnot. But then he went running out of the, his bedroom into the living room saying, Kathy's there, Kathy's there. And he's all freaked out and upset. And I thought a few seconds about that. Let's see. Teenage boy, middle Midwest America, LSD, marijuana, who knows? I was able to dismiss that one. This is my mm. uh, training. I, was, I went to Yale. That's what we learned. You can take the most beautiful poem or sonnet or whatever and chop it up into spaghetti on the cutting room floor and have nothing left. They teach you to analyze very, very well. And that's what I did at Yale. And so I heard these experiences, but I didn't believe them really. Uh, but then Elizabeth herself went on to describe how a, parent, how a patient of hers had died 10 months earlier and had come back to her. And I won't go through the whole account. It's been published quite a few places, again, in her book. And there was nothing for Elizabeth to gain by sharing this and a great deal to lose in terms of the her colleagues and, you know, all the conventional psychologists yeah. psychiatrists. She was a psychiatrist, a medical doctor from Switzerland. And uh, she also described how she had gone into all the, not all, but many of the German concentration camps and seeing butterflies were etched into the walls by the children. And for her, the butterfly was a symbol for life after death. And mm -hmm. Elizabeth herself also invited um, Raymond Moody down to our workshop. Imagine if she had a man fly from Georgia to Florida to talk for two hours to a bunch of students in a class. Wow. And, uh, and he, he talked about near-death experiences, which is something I had already read about and knew about. And that mm -hmm. was my first meeting with Raymond. So that was a very propitious workshop for me. And I came home and I wanted to find, well, if Elizabeth had had an experience, maybe some other people had. So I began looking huh. for books in the local library. I live outside of Orlando, and but there weren't any. And But at that time there was the interlibrary loan um, mechanism where you could order books from any library in the country, no matter how far away, and they deliver mm -hmm. them to you for free. So I began getting books that way. And I'd find one story here, a couple there, another one here. But nobody had ever done a study of this. But I wow. am not a graduate. I'm not a medical doctor. No one should get published in these fields of near-death experiences and uh, out-of-body experiences and whatnot are all medical doctors or PhDs. And I 
sadly did not have either degree. And so I tried to get Raymond Moody to do this research. And another man who worked with him at a college in Georgia were going to find the people for him to interview. And I knew what to ask for and all that. Well, so Raymond was very, very busy in those days. Uh, and while he never said yes, he never said no. So that took 10 years to find <laughs> out he never really was going to do it. And let me say, too, that in the year um, 2000, roughly, uh, Judy and I had three sons, and the youngest one was less than two years old. And on a Sunday afternoon, Judy and I were sitting in our living room, and I heard a voice in my head. Now, this was very clear, but again, it was a thought. It said very simply, go outside and check the swimming pool. And when I did, I got up, and I, I saw that we had a safety gate. As you do here in Florida, you have to have those. And it was a jar, so I went out to close it. And what I did, I saw that our youngest son, Jonathan, not yet two years old, was floating in the water. Oh, man. In the deep end. Now, my heart went into my throat, as they say, and all that. And I went running down the side of the pool. I screeched out Judy's name. And I stood there just for a second as I took off my shoes. For some reason, I knew to do that. And I jumped in the pool, feet first, came up under him. But just before I did, I saw that his eyes were wide open. He had a small mm. smile on his face. And oh, he was wow. about one inch under the water. He wasn't moving. He was just floating with his arms and legs akimbo. And I didn't know what the state was. But I brought, pushed him to the side. Judy heard me. She came rushing out. She took him out by the wrist, pulled him out. And all this had happened so rapidly that... He did not even require CPR. It took a few wow. seconds. He spit up some water. He was cold. I was cold. But that was it. And that <sighs> saved his life. Literally. Not figuratively. Mm-hmm. Not maybe. This definitely saved his life. Yeah. He, didn't know when, he wasn't moving. And he was in the deep end, well away from the side of the pool. And I'd like your listeners to remember one thing. You don't have to believe me in anything else I have said or will say. But if, if, if you ever hear a voice, especially if you're driving a car, if you ever hear a voice say, slow down or stop or don't do this or do this, and it's brief and usually very indirect, it doesn't say stop, you're going to have an accident. It just says stop now, slow down now, make a left turn now, or whatever it may be. In one case of one woman I knew of, it was her deceased husband saying, get out of your bedroom, and she did. 33 years after he died, there was mm. a big storm here in Winter Park, Florida, which is nearby. And a large tree came down right through her bedroom, a large wow. oak tree, which would have killed her if she had not listened to that voice. So It's funny, Bill, as you say that, I had completely forgotten a moment. Years ago, leaving Lilydale in New York when I was writing a book about mediumship, and I heard, stop, just like you said, and stopped as a truck came barreling through an intersection that I was about to go through. And this was before I was a medium. So great advice. Yes. By the way, you, uh, you knew um, Ann Gaiman too, didn't you? you That's why I was there interviewing Ann. Yeah. yeah. She became one of my spiritual teachers. I studied with her for, for a year to try to understand what had happened for me in 1974. And uh, she taught me how to meditate, amongst other things. But she was a very wonderful woman. I wrote about her in my book, The Priest and the Medium, which people can still yes. find on Amazon. So uh, which I, you finally I got hooked it. into 
doing the research yourself then, eh? Yes, we did. We did seven years of research. We interviewed uh, over 3,300 people, first-hand wow. accounts only. And um, they were in all 50 states, all 10 Canadian provinces. I like Canada very much, so we included <laughs> Canada as well. And are, we are you, did you go in person to do these? No, telephone, telephone. These okay. were all okay. recorded on telephone answering machines. And I made a mistake, uh, misstatement. I said we had... We interviewed 2,000 people, and we collected 3,300 firsthand accounts. And so I would call the people up and listen to their story. And if it was a good one, I gave it to one of my 10 female interviewers. And they would call, set up an appointment, call back, and interview uh. them. Some ran 15 minutes, some ran an hour and a half. And some people had multiple experiences to share with us. Others only had one. It, it didn't matter. Some people know how to tell a story, and it's riveting. Other people, it's like, especially men, it's like pulling teeth. Um, <laughs> well, what happened? Well, my father was there. Well, how was he? Okay. Uh, what did he look like? Fine. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's almost impossible to get a story that's coherent out of them. And somebody else has a very smaller experience, and it's very vivid and alive, and lively and interesting to read. So that's just the so- nature so, so Bill, you're, you're starting to hear these stories, and at what point, this is two questions, at what point did you come up with the name after death, the term after death communication? And I want to know more than that, at what point did you become a believer? Well, I was a believer when I began doing it, or I wouldn't have done it. I was <laughs> enough of a Wall Street back, background person that if, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. I had no idea who would publish the book. If need be, I would do it myself because my family is well known as the Guggenheims, and I did inherit money when I was 21. I didn't expect it to be a huge bestseller or anything at that point, but I had faith in it and uh, just began doing that. And so I was a believer from the beginning. And with every story I heard, I knew how meaningful it was, not only for the person who had it, but for others to hear the same account. Because I've been around enough bereaved people here, there, elsewhere in my life to know that these were healing accounts. And so we say about the love from heaven, it provides a great deal of comfort, hope, and healing. And it does. And I get emails, um, recently one from somebody began reading the book in Australia uh, last week, and the same day sent me an email saying, thank you for the book. So these are around the world in many languages. As Hello from Heaven is published in many different languages. And it became and, uh, a bestseller, right? It's a bet was a bestseller. I won't say it was the same as Proof of Heaven by Evan Alexander, but it certainly did all right, especially with the lack of my not being an MD. If I had been an MD, this would have sold two, three, five million copies, I guarantee. But without that endorsement, so to speak, uh, it's much harder to uh, have the book the publicity and things like that. But the beautiful thing is this is a timeless book. When was it originally published? Uh, we uh, self-published it in 1995, and Bantam published it uh, just three months later in 1996. Nice. Bantam, great Hello. publisher. And and that was probably going out on a limb a little bit for them at that time in 95 because, again, you coined the term. It wasn't even known at that time. But now because of that, it is a more, is a much more 
known and used term after death communication. Hello from heaven is filled with what 353 firsthand accounts. How did you decide which ones to use? Well, they actually, um, being analytical as I am, they fell into categories. So some involved scent, S-C-E-N-T. Other ones, feel, sense of feeling or tactile. Other ones, hearing. Other ones, seeing and whatnot. So they fell into 12 different categories. Mm-hmm. And that's how we did it. One category I didn't even know we had until the very end. And that's uh, uh, as people are falling asleep or waking it up, waking up. It's called twilight. So as you're falling asleep and then you go into a full experience or as you're waking up, often the one you're so-called dreaming of or thinking of is right there in the room with you. And again, it's with the language of the experiencer. Wow. I hope that you have some stories in your back pocket to share with us after the break, because I know that's what gives people so much hope, and I can never hear them too often. That's why a book like Hello from Heaven is so wonderful for anybody who's going through grief, because you just pick it up and read one story a day, and it just helps you remember what your soul already knows, doesn't it? Some people, uh, just to say what you're saying, they sip the book. They do read one or two or three stories before they fall asleep at night. I've had other people say, I, I started the book. I read through it in 24 hours. And oh, my gosh. To get, it, it depends how hungry you are and how uh, bereaved you are. So I've heard yeah. you know, a lot of different things. And it, this has been my privilege or our privilege and joy to do this. And every time we did a, presented a workshop, and by the way, our first workshop, we had only been doing our research for one year, but we were invited to a uh, annual conference of the Compassionate Friends over in Tampa, which is less than an hour and a half away. And our very first workshop had over 300 people in it. And the nice. second one had more, had more than 200 people in it. And frankly, at that point, we didn't even really know what we were talking about. Uh, because we hadn't done that much work. But nevertheless, we carried the uh, workshop, and it went well. And uh, a lot of other good things happened and we'll go into. There was a photographer there and a reporter there, and they did a wonderful story for the St. Petersburg Times. And that became um, our validation for doing our work because we sent it out to everybody. It, it just sounds also beautifully directed by spirit, the whole thing. I, I agree with you that this is your path. Now, Bill, before you get going on to another subject, we do have to go to a break. I hope everybody will come back. Lots more to talk about, some great stories. We're talking with Bill Guggenheim. He's the author of Hello from Heaven, and his website is after-death.com. So come on back after a few minutes, and we're just going to enjoy more with Bill Guggenheim. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito 
for a moment of silence. A weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Wow, I'm just loving talking to Bill Guggenheim. I hope you're enjoying listening. And we have, I want to talk about more of the the generalities of after-death communication. But Bill, let's start off this second half with maybe one of your favorite accounts. One of my favorite accounts is not that big an account, but it's something that's very important for people to hear. One of the things I heard so many times, especially by bereaved parents and, uh, and bereaved mothers, is why did God take my child? And that's such a plaintive question, so wrenching. And it's such a, to me, in a way, well, I don't want to say backwards belief, but it's different. Why did God take my child? And we have an account here where a woman asks this of her minister. And I don't know his denomination. I don't think it's even mentioned. But she she told her story to the minister. And he listened patiently and kindly. And he said finally to her, God didn't take your child. He received her. And that's all mm. the difference of the world. Because one, it's a, in America, we live in a society of victimhood. God does nasty things to some people, I guess, in their belief. I, I don't believe that, but... And to, but to take your child would be one of the nastiest things you could do to a mother. And uh, to see it the other way around, that God did not take, he received. And that's the story I like to get out the most. Well, thank you for that. And it's especially touching because I understand that after doing all this research and having a best-selling book about after-death communications, you you lost your own daughter eight years ago. Yes, my daughter Janet um, was 47 years old, and she was on antidepressant drugs, and she met some man who was a musician, nothing to do with medicine, but he convinced her to go off all her medications at one time, and she did, and she waited a while and then told her sister she'd probably resume taking them, but something happened, and uh, when you do that, it's like being on a downward spiral, I believe where you just go lower and lower, it gets darker and darker. You're more and more depressed and cut off from all other humanity. And you believe tomorrow will be only worse than today. It will never be better. It will be more painful, more lonely, more depressive, more pointless. And then she ended her own life, which Mm. gets me very angry on a personal level because in the state of New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico is where she lived. She was able to walk into a Walmart with no waiting period, none, and no background check. And she had plenty of background that could have been checked out as far as her medical history was concerned. She was able to buy a a handgun and used it on herself two hours later. So perhaps if I lived closer to Santa Fe or I was younger, I might make a cause out of it and try to get those laws changed. I know that so many people have stories that that are tragic like that and 
I'm stunned at myself that I said the word lost. That's just the habit we get in to say lost when I know beyond a doubt, and you know it from all the stories you've told, that Janet is not lost, just the physical body is not present anymore. But I'm curious if you've had after-death communications or your wife or anybody in your family from Janet. Yes, I've had a number of after-death communications from Janet, with Janet. Um, At first, I I still can receive writings. And I received a number, first, not from her directly, but whoever cared for her. And it was Mm. called the helpers. And what I found out that the ones who were the helpers for someone in her case were children because she was very childlike herself. And they're Mm. the most unjudging, uh, the most accepting people are young children. They just accept what is. And they were the ones who helped her. And later on, she works with children. And her thing was art. She wrote... She has a beautiful website if anybody wants to check it out. Her name is Janet, J-A-E-N-E-T, Janet, dot net, N-E-T, or dot um, org, O-R-G. And Janet um, wrote and illustrated six books and things like that. And there's a whole bunch more on the website that her mother built for her. And uh, she assured me that she was working with other children and eventually... My favorite song uh, regarding her was Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison of the Beatles. Uh-huh. And yeah. some, for some reason, I, I had it on my laptop, I mean, excuse me, on the desktop of my computer, and I began playing it. And then all of a sudden, right in front of my, they call it the third eye in uh, Indian, you know, whatnot, uh, lore, right in front mm-hmm. of my forehead, in other words, I saw her in full color. She was sort of twirling in place and also then we evolved and danced in a circle to show me how well and how happy she was. And she was more happy, more creative, more everything good there than here. And that, of course, uh, lifted me entirely. Uh, that course. wasn't right away, it was four years after she died, but that was a wonderful experience. And I put that in my new book, The Book of Circles. Beautiful. Now, I know that some people are new to this and some may say, okay, some of the stories you've told, maybe that's wishful thinking, maybe you're grieving. You and I know from the preponderance of evidence that that we can trust these accounts. But do you have accounts of perhaps information that was revealed that people didn't know? That would constitute evidence that people could really hang their hat on. That's what I wondered, too. And yes, going back to when Judy came to discuss with me, when I pitched the idea to her, would you like to do this work with me? Back in 1988, the phone rang and a woman I didn't know well called me and she told me about her aunt up in Tallahassee, which is uh, several hours away from Orlando, and um, how this person had died and came and visited her before she even knew her friend had died. Uh-huh. Now, you're not bereaved until you've learned that someone has made their transition. In other words, I'm in Florida. You're in wherever you are at the moment. And mm-hmm. if, let's, let's make it a person's in the East Coast and they get they have an expre- uh, experience tonight with somebody in California. And that person comes and says, thanks for being my friend. I always loved you. Thank you very much for what you did for me. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye now. I'll see you later. Okay, very simple. So-called dream, doesn't matter. The point is, they wouldn't have that experience, um, you know, 
in this case, if they didn't know the person had died, but, in this, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, they did have it. The next day, they received an email, a phone call, somehow were notified by a third person. Their friend had been in a car accident or the fire, who knows what. Then it makes sense that they had the experience before they knew about it. So it's, everything's backwards. So we call that an ADC before the, receiving the news. Yeah. We have other ones that are years later, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years after the death. People aren't bereaved that long. They're bereaved usually the first few years, maybe five, in the case of three parents, typically, not all, but typically. And, and they have experience 20 years later. That's, again, not a grief-induced hallucination, as they had been called by the psychological community. Mm. Another category is evidential ADCs. This is where they learn something they didn't know. Maybe they knew that there was a, uh, an item of value, but they didn't know where it was. So they mm. were led to find it. Uh, so there are two categories, one they, where they didn't know that this existed. And the other case, a beautiful little story, older couple. She, he was, he, her husband died, and he came and he told her to go upstairs to their bedroom, to the dresser drawers, stand in front of it and reach up to the upper right-hand small drawer, open it, reach in, but reach under the paper. Older people used to put paper in their drawers. They don't do that so much anymore, but they used to. She reached under it, and there was a life insurance policy she didn't even know about. Good one. Great, great. But it was something, and it probably made a big difference financially to her at that time. So there are all kinds of things of this nature. I love how our loved ones try to help us when we get missed. It's great to get evidence that's it's interesting, that's entertaining, but those that show that they know it's something we need, those really warm the heart. Yeah, so there are many variations of this where you didn't even know that there was something of emotional, not necessarily financial, but emotional value or financial or something else that you are led to find and you're guided to it. The other one is where people's lives are protected or saved, such as my son John, was his life was protected by my mm-hmm. being told to go outside and check the swimming pool. And other people from a car accident, a plane accident, a fire, um, danger on a subway, she was told, don't get off here, keep going, because that man will follow you. <laughs> and there are many, many variations where people's lives are protected. That's why I keep saying if, if all this is a bunch of hooey to you, which I doubt it is to your listeners, but if they want to dismiss <laughs> it, they can. But if you receive a warning, it may protect your life. It may enable you to deal with it and bypass the horrible things that would happen if you didn't. It's a... Uh, you know, I'm from New York City, from Manhattan, and a lot of things do happen in a big city like that. And you learn where not to go and what not to do to uh, look for trouble. Then there's a beautiful chapter of suicide intervention. And these were people, all who admitted they were thinking about suicide or planning suicide. And two of them were actually in the act of wow. committing suicide dying by suicide, and at just the right moment, somebody came. It wasn't the words they said. They didn't have a magic formula of what to say or do. They just showed up at the exact moment with the exact whatever it was and dissuaded them from taking their life. 
And the proof was we were able to interview them five or 10 years later. And then finally, the sixth category of why are these real and not, again, grief-induced hallucinations is when two or more people are at the same time, the same place, each having the same or similar experience Mm. with the one who died. In other words, you and I might be together and you might see somebody, your friend or whoever it was who died, and I might receive a message from that person or something else, whatever. And only if we compared notes afterwards, maybe we both saw them at the funeral or whatever. We compare Mm. notes afterwards and we find out we shared that experience. Same place, same time, just slightly different means of doing it. So those are the... That's, this is what I needed to hear before I did the research. And that very first woman, um, which I mentioned earlier, I won't go through it again. That's what I needed because the, the naysayers will tear this apart by saying coincidence or grief or give all kinds of disclaimers. But when you hear something of these natures, you, you can't do that over and over and over with dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds or even thousands of accounts. And you're that's right. That's right. And even and that's why I'm an evidence based medium and I teach evidential mediumship because there are those naysayers and nothing nothing will convince people like a preponderance of the evidence. And yet, Bill, uh, like everybody that's listening, I can't get enough of this. I, I mean, I've been doing readings for over a decade and it just never fails to just thrill me to hear these stories. So I know that some of the people who are listening say, are these just spontaneous or is there something I can do to increase the potential of having an after-death communication from my loved one? That's a very big question, a very important one. What I have said uh, continuously is learn how to meditate. Now, by this, I don't mean you become yes. a yoga, yoga, yogi and sit in a cave in the hills of Tibet for, for many years or India, but you just learn how to meditate and do it on a regular basis, 15, 20 minutes a day. And that opens up your intuition. That's the key to this. It's mm-hmm. your intuitive self. I believe that what you do as a as a medium is intuitive work. I believe these are intuitive, that there's a part of you that's open, that can feel these, sense these, hear these, whatever forms of mediumship you do. And the same for these other experiences after death communications in hello from heaven or intuitive experiences because some people are just more that way than others and the more rational they are especially men i want you know evidence i want proof i want i want i want they're so busy disclaiming it before it even happens that it's hard yeah. Whereas and like you said that you don't have to go sit in a cave it's, he's not talking about hours a day in fact if you go to suzanne slash gifts Again, on that page of free things to help you connect with your loved ones is a, my free ebook called Mastering Meditation. So when Bill Guggenheim says, learn to meditate, and you say, well, how? There's so much. Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, Ann Gaiman taught us very simply. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't even, she didn't even try. She just said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And you do it. And that's what I know how to do. And, of course, there are many different ways to do it. But whatever it is that relaxes you and opens you and allows you to become just that much more receptive. And That's, that's right, receptive. Perfect. And they're even teaching intuition on Wall Street. 
uh, to make money on, on investments, <laughs> things like that. It's a part of the business world today. So it's a very big, legitimate field. Do you think there's a reason why some people simply don't have ADCs, after-death communications? I've been asked that question many times, many ways. Some people I don't think really need it. In other words, a husband and wife who were spiritual when they were married, one dies, they, they know the other one's there waiting for them. And mm. I think it takes a certain amount of effort to come back. And uh, whether the person's awake or asleep and make contact with them and whatnot. And so I, other ones uh, want it, but they're, they're busy. It's, it's like I expect it to happen this way. They're so busy expecting that, they miss it from happening that way. That's a so, good point. Uh, it's, it's expectations often. And other people are, it's, I think it's very hard, just like it is in, in physical life. If somebody is very angry, it's hard to break through their thoughts. If somebody's very depressed, upset, uh, filled with what maybe even guilt and fears and whatnot, it's very hard to get through. So if, and I'm not blaming them, I'm just saying that's where they are at the moment. That doesn't mean that they have to stay there. They can learn how to get past that. And that's the important thing. But it, it's so many people we try to share things with and Obviously, we're not able to. That's all. Belief is such a big part of it. If you don't think it's possible, you're literally cutting yourself off from that. So that's another benefit to reading books like Hello from Heaven. It opens your mind to what's possible, and then you notice what may have been here all along. Like some of the categories you talked about, Bill, uh, scent, uh, smelling something that comes from a loved one. Do you have a story about that? Yes, it's a very lovely one. This was a young, very young girl who died, and uh, a single mother, and they went, all these people, I think there were 12 of them, went to the cemetery for her funeral, and they came back to the woman's house afterwards for a reception, and every one of those women, except one, smelled roses, and there were no roses present or outside the house or in the area, and Mm. the only woman who didn't smell the roses was somebody who had not met the little girl before she had died. So often yeah. you learn these things in an indirect way, a backwards way. And uh, many other smelling ascent, uh, I like to say Minnesota, the dead of winter, nothing but snow, no flowers, no, no nothing. And you're in an office in a cubicle and you start smelling lilacs in December, January, whatever. There are no lilacs there. And then somebody else mm-hmm. comes along down the hallway. They smell them. And another person, a third person, fourth person, they don't acknowledge it until somebody says, oh, that's lovely. Are you wearing lilac perfume? No, no, no. But this is the one experience that can be shared by, as I said, uh, up to 11, 12 people, or certainly two or three people at one place at one time. So, again, the, yeah. these are the things that make these real and not hallucinations. Or you suddenly smell grandpa's cigar or, or in the case of my dad standing at the foot of his bed at hospice and I smelled my grandmother's distinct perfume that I hadn't smelled in decades. And, of course, she was there to escort her son home. So these, I know that some of you listening right now want to call in and share your stories because we, we all can think of them, but sometimes people don't know what that is. There are many, many, well, we have 12 different categories. I don't have time, I think, to go through them all, but feeling a touch, smelling a fragrance, seeing them, uh, so-called dreams, which are not dreams. I'd like to introduce one thing we haven't touched. I, 
all taught me to see life differently. Mm-hmm. And what That's... I like to say now is what I've come to believe is that each of us, I, you, everyone who's hearing us, is a spirit or a soul who is wearing a physical body. Yep. I call our physical body our earth suit. We need to wear this to operate here on the planet Earth. Without it, nobody would see us or hear us. We couldn't pick up a pencil or a paper. We couldn't accomplish anything. We'd be like ghosts or something like that to each other. But if you compare the Earth suit, very much like to the astronaut's protective suit, to the spacesuit, our physical body can take a great deal of damage to it. And unfortunately, many um, victims of war uh, lose their limbs and whatnot. It's horrible how much damage can be done to a body. They still exist, still live. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they overcome it in many cases, and um, they survive. And uh, But it's a spacesuit can only take so much damage that it will cease to function, and no person wearing it ceases to exist or physically the body dies. So the only thing that dies, in my analogy here, is our physical body. The only thing we bury or cremate is the physical body. The I who I am, the I who you are, the I who each of your listeners is, is eternal. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. And my assistant Lynette tells me that you don't refer to those in the spirit world as dead. Well, they're alive. They're more alive than we are. Uh, <laughs> but I, now, there are people who say death does not exist. Well, I think that's a misstatement because even a child can see that a small animal hit by a car is dead. It's killed. The body's not mm-hmm. moving. And so there is death. But um, It's death of the physical from, body. But yes, that's all, as, as the, you were just saying. Uh, not the essence, not the soul, the spirit. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. I am, the, whatever you want to call the essence of us. Mm-hmm. So we have about five minutes left here. Did you find in your research, I know you talk to people in every state and all the Canadian provinces, did you find out if after-death communications are worldwide? No, we didn't do a worldwide study, so I don't know the answer to that. I've, uh, we found that in America, uh, I hope this doesn't come out wrong, but what I would call the indigenous peoples, or the people who have less education, formal education, are more open to these. You know, I don't mean that they're stupid or anything. I'm just saying they're not as schooled against having things like this. So Native mm-hmm. Americans have them. Uh, Black and Hispanic people have them. And uh, Hawaiians have them more than typical other people, white people, simply because it hasn't been drummed out of their culture. That's interesting. Huh. And that's, okay. fact, that's very true in countries like India where they, they, you know, after death, I think in some parts of the world, you, they wouldn't need a book. They wouldn't want a book. They just have these experiences. And how did you find the people life. to interview in Hello from Heaven? Did, did you just Basically, put out word that you were looking for people? Everywhere I went, I was looking for people. So if I was on an airplane, I'd, I'd somehow be sitting next to somebody. I'd mention this, and they'd say, oh, yes, I've had one of those or here, there, elsewhere. Mainly, a lot of them came because I did a lot of presentations and had people sign up after the workshop where they put it in their newsletter. 
So there are a great many newsletters, one for each of the uh, different compassionate friends um, chapters, and they published it there. Plus, we had a great deal of publicity. We were in newspapers. I was on, there was a one-hour TV show before the book ever came out that I was on in Seattle, Washington. Never got that much attention after the book came out, ironically. But a tremendous amount of publicity, even in the tabloids. And just because a person reads tabloids, don't assume that they don't have a story to tell and aren't uh, well-educated. Some people just enjoy reading tabloids. Not very great uplifting information in some (laughs) cases, but nevertheless, that's where Chicken Soup for the Soul was first advertised, by the way, was in the uh, tabloids. Before we run out of time, just with a minute to go, what is the most important message to those across the veil who come back in after-death communications, if they're able to share a message rather than just a scent or a touch? Here's what they typically What say. is their message? The messages are, I'm okay. I'm fine. Everything is okay. I'm happy. Then... Don't worry about me. There are two parts of grief. One is what I, my concern for the one who died, and the other is my sense of loss. They're saying, don't worry about them. They're okay. Don't grieve for me. It's a typical message. They often say everything will be all right. Go on with your life. And then sort of a guardian angel type of message, I'll always be there for you, and I'm watching over you. But regardless of the words used, they're all messages that say, I love you. I'll see you again. Sometimes it's a goodbye for now. Sometimes it's a goodbye. They won't come again. But I love you is the message that comes across. Or else they wouldn't come here in the first place. Never heard of a negative uh, and uh, ADC here. Not one. That is amazing, but not surprising to me, having done so many readings. That is exactly what those who I speak with have to say as well. And it's so affirming and so comforting. And Bill, I thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing what you've learned with us. I encourage everybody to check out Hello from Heaven. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susanna. We really enjoyed doing this, especially with you. I respect you (laughs) so highly for who you are and what you've done and what you are doing. Thank you, and thank you all, and we'll see you back here next week. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.